The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. I want to welcome you today to the Zion Primitive Baptist Church podcast. This podcast is an outreach of Zion Primitive Baptist Church, which is located in the Zion community near Gordo, Alabama. I'm Elder Chris McCool, and I serve as pastor of Zion Primitive Baptist Church. We are a congregation of believers in the sovereign grace of God where families worship together through the simple practice of preaching, praying, and singing. If you live in this area or are visiting here, we would love to have you attend worship services with us. We meet every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. and every Sunday evening at 5 p.m. and the first and third Wednesday evenings at 6.30 p.m. I'm happy to note that our daily podcast is featured on Grace Alone Radio, which you can find at gracealoneradio.net. You can find the schedule on the website, and you can also download an app to your phone so that you can listen wherever you are. Grace Alone Radio is a 24-hour streaming service which carries the message of God's sovereign grace around the clock and around the world. Zion Primitive Baptist Church is located at 9487 County Road 49, Gordo, Alabama. That's near the intersection of County Road 49 and Alabama Highway 159, about eight miles north of Gordo, Alabama, and about 10 miles northeast of Reform, Alabama. If you're interested in finding more sermons, you can go to our website at zionpbc.com, that's z-i-o-n-p-b-c.com, where you'll find all of our posted sermons as well as a link to subscribe to our podcast. You can also subscribe to our website which will update you every time a new sermon is posted. Today, we want to continue in our little mini-series on baptism. Throughout the centuries, Baptists have generally refused to accept infant baptism as valid baptism. We as primitive Baptists certainly hold to this historic position. But why is it that we do not practice infant baptism? Why do we believe it's improper to baptize babies? Join us today as we delve into this issue and we will see why Scripture does not support infant baptism in our churches. But first, we have a song selection that we hope you enjoy. Then please stay tuned to the message.
I want to ask that you pray for me as you turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. Two or three weeks ago when we had the baptism, I preached on baptism and I thought that was all that I was going to do in regard to baptism. And for whatever reason, the Lord has kept laying it on my heart to go back to, to talk about the, the, some of the scriptural principles about baptism. And if you recall, two weeks ago when we were here, we looked at how we baptize and who we baptize. Today, I want to preach a sermon that is a little bit unusual for the way I like to preach sermons. I don't like to preach against things, uh, although from time to time, as children of God, we do have to stand up and, and call out things that are improper or wrong and, and call them that. We have to say that's not correct. I, I don't like criticizing other denominations. I don't like calling them out, and um, although I may use some of the names of some denominations this morning, it's not my intent to uh, be a, a critical preacher, but the topic on my heart this morning uh, is something that is really prevalent throughout the religious world. Baptists, and in particular primitive Baptists, but Baptists in general throughout the history of time have stood against this practice. And what I'm talking about is infant baptism, the baptizing of babies. You may recall that we have talked about how we baptize, and we've talked about who we baptize. Well, that kind of leads us to the, to the, to the why, so to speak. And, and what I want to look at today, again, not in a sense of attacking any other religious order of it at all, but in the sense of us understanding why we do what we do. I want to talk about why we don't subscribe to the practice of infant baptism here at this church throughout the primitive Baptist world and indeed for the most part throughout the Baptist world, although that has somewhat changed through the years. It's been said that one of the strange uh, circumstances that we find ourselves in, in the church, and I mean when I say the church, I'm talking about the local visible body of the church. I realize the church in one sense is every single elect child of God everywhere. I get that. The kingdom of God on earth is every elect child of God everywhere. But not every elect child of God everywhere is a member of a local body. The body of the church, the local body, is the visible aspect of the kingdom of God. It's that which we can see. It's that which we are part of here at Zion Church. And it's that which we, uh, uh, the place where we carry the banner of the good news of the gospel in the most open and public way. And one of the strange circumstances that we find ourselves in, in general in this world, in the religious world, is that there are, there are many, many, probably millions of baptized non-believers <laughs> that were baptized as babies that never go on to be really an active part of any church. And by the way, at the same time, we often have in our churches unbaptized believers, <laughs> people that don't uh, haven't followed the Lord in New Testament baptism and haven't made a public profession. That's a, another message for another day. There's a lot of confusion about baptism out there, and, and particular regarding this practice. And as I said earlier, Baptists have historically not baptized babies. 
And in fact, that name Anabaptist, as we're going to talk about in a few minutes, that's kind of, you know, we certainly derive, we believe, our lineage from John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. But also, as history went on into the Middle Ages, there was a name given to those who did not accept infant baptism, but rebaptized those who were uh, those that might have been baptized as babies, but who had become believers. They were called Anabaptists, and that means rebaptizer. And that that name was given because our Baptist forefathers in days of yore would not accept Catholic the Catholic Church baby baptism and later on the protestant church's baby baptism and would only accept believers baptism so i think it's important as a pastor that i try to equip you with the knowledge to know why we do the things that we do so that's my purpose and by the way pray for me because i kind of feel like that's where the lord's lead me on several different topics maybe as we start this year so if the Lord help is, is in this, then we may talk about several other things that we do here at this church and among our people that maybe are different than what the world does, but we need to look at it from a scriptural standpoint and see why we do it. So let's look at infant baptism. There are historical reasons dictating against infant baptism. You say, preacher, that's a funny place to start. Well, I get that. It is because we don't look to history as our guide necessarily, but it can be helpful. We look to Scripture, but we're going to talk about Scripture in a few minutes. As far as early evidence goes, this may sound a little bit like a lecture, and I apologize for that, but I think it's important that we understand where we came from. As far as early evidence goes, there's no evidence in any of the history books or the contemporary writings, including the Scripture, which we'll talk about in a minute, for infant baptism, for babies being baptized in the days of the apostles. In those days, there's no evidence. And in fact, there's no evidence in any extra-biblical sources, and that just means I'm, I'm talking about sources of writing outside the Bible. They're extra-biblical. They're not biblical writings. There's no evidence in extra-biblical writings about this practice until the late 2nd century. Uh, it seems to have been fully established among uh, the Catholic Church in particular, by the 4th century. And if you'll remember, that fourth, notice, remember when we say the 4th century, we're talking about the 300s. You know, so, you know, the 20th century was the 1900s. The, we're in the 21st century, which is the 2000s. So the 4th century was the 300s. What happened in about 310 or 312 A.D.? Constantine, the emperor, uh, married the church and the state. He converted to Christianity, and then the church and state uh, were sort of married together ever, ever since then. There was one or two times where, um, you know, an emperor would go away from that. But generally speaking, that's sort of the, the genesis of the Catholic Church, uh, which is where it began to rise to prominence. So uh, there's no, there's no evidence. I looked, I looked up some of the sources, the Encyclopedia Britannica, which doesn't always get it right, but uh, I just quote you this from it just to tell you that even the the non-religious sources agree with this. There's no certain evidence, it says, of this practice earlier than the second century. And the ancient baptismal liturgies are all intended for adults. So anything they've got that goes back beyond that focuses upon adults. Tertullian is a Christian philosopher and apologist writer who, was, who lived in Carthage, uh, which is across the Mediterranean Sea from Rome. He was born at around 155 to 160 uh, A.D. 
He wrote a treatise on baptism sometime around probably 200 A.D. He died in 220 in Carthage, so it was sometime around that time probably. And in that, in that treatise, he, he criticized the practice of baptizing babies, which tells us that by that time, there was a practice going on among some of the churches of baptizing infants. In 248, Origen, who was considered an early church father, he wrote that infants ought to be baptized. He was a proponent of it. He was a, he was a, a, a writer sort of in the pre-Catholic era. And, and if you read all the early church fathers, this is something I would you know, encourage you to do sometime if you're interested in this. You'll see that even those that, especially those that promoted infant baptism, had a misconception about baptism. They, and this is a summary, so you have to go into the details yourself, but, or ask me about it later and I can help you with that. But they basically believe that somehow the act of baptism conveyed grace upon the subject that was being baptized. And in some cases, Origen was one of those, he believed that baptism actually washed away sins. He said that it took away the, the taint of original sin, which we know, we've already talked about, I'm not going to go review it, but uh, I should have those messages up on our podcast in a few days, so go back and listen to them if you can. We know that baptism does save us, but it does not save us eternally. Remember 1 Peter in verse 20, chapter 3 and verse 21, which is where I asked you to turn this morning. He says, The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. But he goes on to explain there, it's not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. The person who is being baptized already has a good conscience. And of course, we saw that the only way to get a good conscience toward God is to be born again. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, for they are spiritually discerned. But baptism is something that answers that good conscience, is something that one who's been born again who wants to do something, which is always the case. When you're born again, every child that's born into this world, wants, if it's healthy, it wants to do something. It starts crying or something. Well, this is what that child needs to do, not what the religious world says you need to do, which is to go ahead and do something else to get saved. No, they should be baptized because they're already saved. But all these early church fathers... They, they kind of, the best way I know to sum it up is to say they kind of baptized babies just to be safe because <laughs> they thought that baptism would get them to heaven. But that's not the case. If you go on through history, you'll find some decrees from Roman emperors. One in 391 from uh, the Roman emperor that, that basically said that if, you're a, if you rebaptize, if you rebaptize anybody, you're going to be exiled and maybe even put to death. Later on, in 413, just a couple of decades later, the Roman law made it a capital offense to rebaptize someone who had been baptized as a baby, which tells us that by that time, infant baptism was a common practice among some churches. Okay. Now, 1517, the Reformation began. Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the castle church there in Wittenberg, Germany. And, uh, and, and the Reformation began, but the Reformation didn't bring any relief to this practice of baptizing babies, okay? It didn't change that Catholic practice. Lutherans, Calvinists, Anglicans all insisted on infant baptism, and they excoriated those 
who were opposed to them, and that was primarily the Anabaptists. That's when we start hearing that name, Anabaptist, being used. And again, the word Anabaptist just means re-baptizer. So anybody like us that would re-baptize someone who had been baptized as a baby would be called an Anabaptist in that day. And if you remember, it's interesting to me because I've done a lot of study of the Reformation, and we're not reformers. We don't believe that the Baptist church came out of the Reformation. We were never part of the Catholic church, and, and we've talked about that in the past. We're, there, there was a line of Anabaptists uh, from the Waldenses and the Abigensians and uh, the, the, the followers of Minnow. There were the Bohemian Brethren, all sorts of people like that that were considered out. They, they never were part of the Catholic church. The reformers came out of the Catholic Church primarily. And the great rallying cry of the Reformation was sola scriptura, which means scripture alone, scripture alone. And you know, it's interesting to me, as we're going to see in a moment, that when you apply that principle of scripture alone, you will not find any, uh, any support for infant baptism in the scripture. But we'll come back to that in a, in a minute. Even Calvin himself wrote in his Institutes, I believe it was, but it was in some of his writings, that it is certain that immersion was the practice of the early church. And we'll talk about that in a moment. That means that infants were not being baptized. So remember during the Reformation as well that the marriage of the church and the state. See, one of the things that the, our, our forefathers here in this country, the Puritans, the Pilgrims, other Baptists that came over here from Europe believe strongly is that the state had no business in the church, that, that the state did not control uh, the church. The church uh, was not really part of the state. We are, you know, we are not um, an arm of the government. We're not an arm of, of the local government or the national government. It doesn't matter. This is a separate kingdom here. And although I am proud to be an American citizen, I am more thankful to be a citizen of that heavenly kingdom. As a matter of fact, that's the most important citizenship we have as children of God, is being citizens of the heavenly kingdom. But un un when the Protestant Reformation occurred, there was no change to the marriage between church and state. See, up to that point, all, <clears throat> all states were Catholic states. But after the Reformation, some states, some segments of Germany and the Holy Roman Empire, for example, were, uh, some, some areas were Protestant, some areas were Catholic. And, and essentially what happened was that depending on who prevailed in that particular area, you were either always a Catholic or a Protestant, and that citizenship was simultaneous with the state. And the reason for that is that all the citizens in that state had been baptized one way or the other as babies. They had either been baptized as Catholic or they had been baptized as Protestant. It was a political basis for maintaining that. So let's talk just for a minute about the Anabaptists. All along throughout history, and you go back and you can search this out, all along there were these dissenters from the mainline orthodox beliefs, there were these dissenters who held fast to the practice of believer's baptism. I've named some of them already, the Waldensians. Uh, the, there were followers of a man named Minnow. Uh, there were followers of, uh, there were the Abigensians, there were the Bohemian Brethren. The reformers, by the way, persecuted them as much or more than the Catholics had. 
The, 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 the persecution did not change. There was persecution from both the Protestant side and from the Catholic side. But one of the strongest evidences for the existence of the Anabaptists comes not, you know, comes not from all of the self-serving uh, history writers or anybody like that. Most of them couldn't write anyway. They were stamped out. But from one of the biggest enemies of Anabaptists, it was a, a guy named Hosius, Stanislaus Hosius. He was a cardinal in the Catholic Church. And he was the presiding officer of the Third Council of Trent, which opened in 1561 and ran until 1563. See, what happened after the Reformation is that there was a counter-reformation. There was, the Catholic Church came back in and said, okay, we've got to counter this. And they established the Council of Trent. And, um, and he read this statement. I want to read this statement to you. I've shared this with you in a message some time back, but I just want to remind us of what he said. First of all, he said this. He said, Hereof did the Anabaptists take occasion of their heresy. For whereas Luther's opinion seemed to them to be against all reason, as in very deed it is. See, he didn't like Luther either. Uh, Martin Luther there. That young children have faith of their own. They thought it a more sure way to let them alone unbaptized. That is to let babies, young children unbaptized, and not to christen them till such time as they could believe for themselves. He, because they said this was grounded upon the word of God, which word they cried with a loud voice should endure forever, and against which word they did make their boast that hell's gates should not be able ever to prevail. These are people who believe, according to the enemies of these people, they believe that, that the scripture teaches believers' baptism only. And then he went on in his writings to confirm the existence of these Anabaptists throughout church history. And he says this, and it's a little complicated, but listen to it. For if so be that as every man is most ready to suffer death for the faith of his sect, so his faith should be judged most perfect and most sure, there shall be no faith more certain and true than is the Anabaptists. In other words, if you want to judge whether somebody's sincere, you look at these Anabaptists, and you'll see that their faith is strong. Because seeing, he said, then is the Anabaptist, seeing there be none now or have been before time for the space of these thousand and two hundred years who have been more cruelly punished or that have more stoutly, steadfastly, cheerfully taken their punishment, yea, or have offered themselves of their own accord to death, were it never so terrible and grievous. In other words, he's saying, these Anabaptists, we don't like them, we don't agree with them, but you've got to admire them. Because they would die for what they believed. And then he, and especially particularly, he said, they've existed for 1,200 years. This is in the 1500s. That takes us back to the 300s, before about the time that the Catholic Church arose and the church and state were married. So historically, I just say all this to say historically, we have a legacy from our historical forefathers that we stand on believers' baptism only, and we don't baptize those, we don't baptize babies, and we don't baptize those who don't or can't believe. So now, that's history, okay? You say, preacher, that's history, I, that's great, but uh, I want to know what the Scripture says. Let's talk about that, okay? Let's talk about scriptural reasons dictating against infant baptism. Well, first of all, the primary scriptural reason that we don't believe in infant baptism is that infant baptism cannot be found in the scriptures. It can't be found there. Nowhere in the Bible does scripture advocate nor record an infant baptism. 
It's impossible for anyone who promotes infant baptism to, to make any kind of scriptural argument for it from the standpoint of saying, here's where it says to do it, okay? Now, that, that brings me, I want to share these two principles with you because if we continue on this line of talking about why we do what we do here at Zion Church, we're going to need to remember these principles. There's, there's a principle called the regulative principle, and there's a principle called the normative principle of Bible interpretation, okay? Now, here's what the regulative principle of worship says. It says that the corporate or public worship of God should be founded upon specific directions of Scripture. And, and another way to put it is this. If it's not in the Scripture, you shouldn't do it. That, that's what it's saying. We don't have the liberty to add to what the Scripture says. Now, the normative principle of worship says that you can pretty much include anything that the Scripture doesn't specifically prohibit. But you think about how that opens up all kinds of problems if you follow that path. If you follow, follow that particular principle of worship, then there's so many things that could be brought in that, that should not be brought in. The struggle through the history of the church is which is it to be? Is it the regulative principle where we say if it's not in the Scripture, we don't do it, we follow the specific dictates of Scripture, or is it this looser approach where we can add anything we want to to it? Well, we believe, and Baptists have believed, and in fact, the Protestant Reformation, the Protestant Reformers believed in that regulative principle that if it's not in the Scripture, we're not allowed to just come up with it and add it to what we're um, doing here in public worship. Due to the constraints of time, we will stop the message here. But please join us tomorrow for the conclusion of this message. If you would like to subscribe to our website, please go to www.zionpbc.com and sign up for email updates. If you have any questions, please feel free to contact the church at zionpbc1847 at gmail.com. That's Z-I-O-N-P-B-C-1847 at gmail.com. Or you can email me directly at jchrismccool at gmail.com. That's the letter J-C-H-R-I-S-M-C-C-O-O-L at gmail.com. Again, thank you for listening. May the Lord bless you is my prayer. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.